Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm not finished yet. It took me a long time to get here. Both parents have, have spoken with each other and... Uh, and they regret what happened. They've had a frank discussion with each other, and they're, they're both of them are keen to, to now focus on getting back to their county jerseys. That these fellas will get such a shell shock next Saturday evening that we'll put them back in their houses for 10 years. Okay, lads, so we're back again with a quick update on where we are. Um, so, according to RT website, there's a meeting today. Um, with the COVID-19 advisory group. So there's four doctors on this. This is the advisory group that the GA set up. And it looks like from June the 8th, uh, the GA clubs are going to be allowed to open up walking tracks around the premises. But it's believed that there's going to be no immediate return to the use of club fields or property for training of small groups or anything like that. So, like, I mean, the walkways are going to be opened up, Conan. The government say you know, training can start. So not only have the government said pitches could start three weeks ago, they now say on June the 8th that training can start with small groups, but the GEA think the right thing to do is just to open up walkways. So for me, very frustrating, but look, that's uh, that's what we have to live with. Yeah, look, personally, I'd, I'd love to go into the pitch for a kick around or whatever. I'm not, I'm not that incensed by it, you know, by being closed or whatever. It's, it is a little... Frustrating, but I can see, like, you know, obviously every club is different and there's like, so many different places in Ireland from rural to city. And I'm just thinking about my own club here in Scaries and there's only one pitch and there, there's hurling, there's football, there's ladies football and there's camogie and you have three senior men's teams, you know, you have two ladies teams and whatever amount of camogie and hurling, underage teams. I think if you're going to start dividing these squads up into seven or eight, do you know, like having four, groups of four or five or whatever, it's, it will get tough because we find it tough to get the pitch anyway. So, yeah. It would be a very hard thing to work out and it would be almost a full-time job for somebody to try and police. So I can see why from that point of view, now that's one club, 
why they'd be happy. Like, you know, thank God the pitch is closed, we don't have to worry about it. But, um, like, yeah, personally, I wouldn't mind just going down and, and pinging a few wides. Yeah, <laughs> I think, I think, uh, I think Connor players and, um, you know, players are, are using club grounds around the country as it stands. I think they're sneaking in. I know one club in Leash, a fella told me that they're getting in over the wire. And most, a lot of, an awful lot of GA grounds are not wired anyways. Like Port Leash is locked up. Um, it would be difficult to get into it, but a lot of a lot of club grounds aren't. Yeah, I'd be saying, well, anecdotally, I would I would hear the same thing. Like just like our pitch is uh, our pitch is essentially locked, but there are ways to access it. And like I know of loads of pitches around Mayo that like you can access from nearly the the side of the road. So like I like and I I too would have heard anecdotally that people are go like just training on the pitch, and you know I can understand it to a certain degree because especially since last Monday, so phase one was lifted last Monday, so people are out playing golf. You know, people are playing tennis, you know, there's people running and cycling together and like people can essentially do, um, you know, in public parks that have GA goalposts, what they could do, you know, on the GA pitch anyway. So like when yeah. GA players are kind of seen, like I know, for example, there, there'd be public parks in Dublin with GA goalposts that like lads could go down and have a kick around, whereas the only place we can do it in. Uh, around here would be our actual GA pitch. So when people see that, they get a bit antsy and think, well, why can't I do that as well? And just in general, I, like I, I think even since the guidelines have been lifted, I think there's, you know, people are talking about businesses reopening earlier and hairdressers reopening earlier, and people are nearly taking their own interpretations of of, of the guidelines and, and and doing it themselves, which which makes it again even harder to police, as Conan was saying then. Well, that's it. But here's the thing: this uh, hard to police thing, Conan, because this is mentioned all the time. And how can a poor worker in Lidl on ten euros an hour? How can they police it? Like you'd swear that this is a, an impossible task. Your social distancing, like it's a two meter um, thing. Like, I mean, why is this like some sort of unachievable aim that somebody might have to just oversee that people are social distancing when most people want to social distance anyways? <laughs> I know what you mean, but like you that get guy in little being paid, you know, that, that's that's a job. Ah, yeah, but sure, look, club, sure, listen, people are tearing their hairs out here, Colin, they're bloody bored. Would somebody love not to go up for the day and have a look around and here now, go back there now. That's 1.8 metres. Yeah. I'd, I'd say there'd be club club officials and mentors only too delighted. It's just their hobby. Their hobby's been taken away from them. Yeah, but like uh, my, my experience with club committees is they're not very fond of, uh, of the players that often and you don't like people who used to pitch anyway. So um, I can't imagine <laughs> them being too enamoured of the idea of standing. Are you calling them lazy? <laughs> <laughs> I just can't see them really enjoying me kicking the ball around and them having to watch for, for an hour or whatever yeah I don't know so anyway government phase 2 on June the 8th just to move off this is uh, permit people to engage in sporting and fitness activities involving small group team training but not matches where social distancing can be maintained and where there's no contact you know, that's just perfectly achievable from my point of view and like you say there is nothing that would stop a GA team hiring the local soccer pitch or rugby pitch or the, the local park and having a full uh, training session, social distancing. So is the GA are making it harder on their members, you know, rather than making it easier because they're not. It's impossible to stop it. 
You know, it's impossible to stop. And it, it's a, like there's nothing to stop a team going to a woods and do, you know, sending them off in fours and fives. You know, so they're, they're not really fixing anything. They're just making it difficult because Michael Murphy was talking about, especially what like what you're saying, Connor, about, you know, small rural towns where the pitch is the only kind of area to exercise. Like it could be farmland all around it. And they've taken that away from them. You know, so what, they might have to go down to the local soccer pitch and do a training session. And that's legal. Government has said that's fine. You know, but their own organization isn't isn't facilitating that for them, you know. So I think that is the, and actually what they're doing is um, the Alan Milton was quoted this week saying they're not insured. He told he was telling the Sunday Independent, I've heard one or two clubs that were supposed to have crossed the line, but we have no confirmation. People might see one or two on a pitch and say they are back training. So he says they're not insured. The LGFA um, have banned insurance as well so they've they've released a statement saying following reports that some lgfa groups intend hiring or using facilities um outside of ga grounds to commence training in small groups when phase two of the COVID 19 restrictions commence on june the 8th the management committee of central council has suspended the lgfa injury fund with immediate effect immediate effect from the second 22nd of may like what's that achieving like i mean you're social distancing just doing a few runs what's going to happen to you like i mean it's like i don't i don't know conan i'll i'll, I'll throw that to you they're, they're just so conservative like they're the most important people in the world and do you know what the problem is going to be here now is when they actually say we're allowed back in the pitch because they've been so shut down about everything and saying nothing's happening as soon as yeah. players are allowed back in the pitch then like you know, you'll start thinking, right? There's going to be games, and you know, so you'll actually start going into full-on training sessions a lot yeah. quicker than you probably would have because because you were told nothing, and now you're told like there's something back in sight. So you like you know, and again, we're talking about the paranoia. Like you know, managers and players will all start thinking we need to get ready here. We're about to get hit with a championship, mm-hmm. and we want to be prepared for it. Yeah, and of course, the question remains: who's going to police everything on July the twentieth? We asked that the last day as well. Like it's interesting. Sean Kelly is a former president, and he was talking. Um, during the week and he says you're always better off giving people something they can look forward to rather than saying nothing is going to happen we should be prepared to work and open as soon as we're given the authority to do so so it just shows the difference in leadership um, there Connor like Sean Kelly would treat this an awful lot different than John Horan yeah and to be honest that July 20th uh, date is looking further and further like we've been in lockdown for just over two months already and it's felt like about two years so, you know, like, and then the, the, the July 20th date is still two months away. So if you think people are getting impatient now, you know, you can imagine them by the middle of June, if we still have to wait another six oh weeks for GA pitches to open. And at this stage as well, like, I, I think the GA are nearly making a rod for their own back. If they're, you know, just with the opening of walkways, I know it's not a pitch, but they're, you know, they're letting something be done and then people be walking around the yeah. pitch. Not Who's even- going to police it? Who's going to police the walkways? Well, that's it. And not even, not even, not able to jump on it. What if they're walking around with their kids or, or something, their kids decide to, you know, hop over a fence and run onto the pitch and stuff like that. So I'd say there's countless problems coming the GAs, the GAs way that way as well. But yeah. just the more I think about it and the more kind of, just with phase one, you know, in place already, phase two coming a couple of weeks away, July 20, it seems an awful long way away. Like at this stage, I, like I'd be very surprised if if that date isn't moved forward by the GA, just just on the back of everything that we're hearing over the last few days and weeks. Yeah. Why could it not just follow the government guidelines and everyone will be happy and they can always fall back on that and say, look, we're following, you know, the government's um, plans and then everything's fine because you're right. July the 20th is a long, long time away and there could still be cases in the community at that stage, very unlikely 
based off what we're seeing now. And like, I mean, on the RTE website, they said there's very, very few cases left in the community now that the new cases we're seeing every day are from meat processing uh, factories and from um, care homes. You know, so like we've flattened this curve. We've we've pretty much whacked it out. And now we should be starting to get back to our normal life. I'm sick of this. Like, I'm not lying. Like, I'm sick of this. This this needs to we need to start getting back to 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 life, you know, like, I mean, and living alongside the risk and managing the risk. And, you know, that's all I'm going to say on it. I'm not going to give out any more, but I am sick of it. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. Like you go through days where it's just, oh, God's sake, this is ridiculous. You know, but um, Michael Murphy has been speaking. Remember, we were talking two weeks ago, the last show we did about uh, Paddy Talley and his theory that Joe Brawley completely agreed with, you know, that players are, you know, they're finally discovering that they have a life and that their life to work to trading balance is all wrong. And, you know, they've finally realized that there's family and there's all those other things. Um, and Michael Murphy has been talking. He says the middle three or four weeks was difficult. You have so much structures as an intercounty player and you only realize that when you come out of it. You train these days um, and at these certain times. All of a sudden that's taken away from you and you have to try and fend for yourself. Train by yourself and use what's around um, you at home to make that happen. And then Anthony Cunningham, Roscommon manager, was saying, um, but the lads are, are sort of lost, really, and that's the nature of the beast. I have to say that guys are at a loss without that interaction and personal contact. They're used to being very structured in life, uh, training four or five times a week, knowing what's coming next. I guess it's hitting hard that everything has come to a stop and the panel has been disbanded. Again, I repeat what I said the last show. I think intercounty players, instead of thinking, oh, there's such a great life out there, they, these are competitors and they're absolutely pissed off, Connor. Yeah, and I, th I think we mentioned at the last that Joe was pretty selective in the example he used. He talked to a recently retired player who's obviously whose motivations would be completely different from a lad in his 20s who's mad to go. And like the way I'd nearly look at it is that like a couple of those lads, you know, a few inter-county players might have thought, oh, this is nearly like a holiday for everybody else. And then after a couple of weeks, they want, they crave that routine. They're creatures of habit. You know what I mean? This is, yeah. this is what they know and this is what this is what they've signed up for and this is what they want to do. And for the last few weeks, like there's only... So many, so many variations of roads on the runs you can do, whether you're doing a 5K or you're doing a 10K or doing a 1K or even if you have a decent patch of grass or something, you, you know, you can only make, motivate yourself to do so many shuttle runs or sprints and stuff like that on your own. It's or when you're up against yourself or maybe a mate. It's just like I, I like I feel I feel sorry for the for, for the intercounty lads who who would have been used to that routine for so long and then now yeah. it's, and it's, and to be fair to club lads, anyone who's a competitor <laughs> and who loves playing Gaelic football, you, we feel sorry for at the moment, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. And that, yeah. that, that's it. Like, you know, but like mentally, I actually, I hate the structure and the routine. Like that, that's the thing I hate most about, say, GA is like having to be in a certain place at a certain time. You don't want someone else's time. Like I always enjoy it, but it's like, oh, I have to be there at that time. And yeah. You're rushing to get there. But what I find now, like I say, as you're saying about as a competitor, like just athletically, it's just it's too easy not to train now. And at the start, it was it was good. Like we were all standing on our runs and our times into the group. And, you know, people are driving each other on saying, well done. But now you've gotten the stage where you feel like, an asshole for sending in your time, you know, because not everybody's doing it, and and like it's you are missing that sort of group thing then, where you're like, like testing yourself against somebody else, or you're doing group runs, or just somebody's there to say well done or hurry to help. You don't yeah. have that anymore, and like that that's the thing you miss most.
No, it's definitely hard. So, like, I mean, a, a few shows ago, I think it was a month, I was giving out about all the skills videos doing the rounds because, geez, they were just getting, there was a bit of a, an oversaturation of it. But in fairness, Kieran Kilkenny stayed committed to the cause. And I have to say, like, I mean, he stuck it out really well, did his videos, skills videos in Gaelic football and in hurling, did them in Irish and in English, and it did them on a daily basis, you know, just for children around the country. Like, is there a better example, Conan, of a Gael than Kieran Kilkenny? <laughs> no, well, actually, it was sort of interesting that he was going to have to run out of steam at some stage. <laughs> and, <he just laughs> didn't. and, like, they actually they were all getting more and more interesting, I found as well. Like, and there's one he did of Alan Brogan where, like, a lot of them are very simple, but you're like, geez, that, that's that was excellent. Good. Was excellent yeah, yeah. That's, that's a great one to teach a kid. Like, the one with Alan Brogan was just, you had to receive the ball on the move. So, you're working on your first touch. He turned as he took the ball, which is just a great thing to sort of drill into players. Like, you know, don't just stand there, you really get swallowed up. And then, you had to drill a low pass off this low wall, you know, where otherwise you would have kicked it over if you didn't get it right and, and collect it on the points again. And it just, just, just an excellent drill that he did with, <laughs> with two great names as well. But like I'd say, a lot of people, I know he got a segment then on TV for a while, like you know, they were showing some of his stuff on TG Car, was it, or RTE? And uh, yeah, like I'd say, a lot of people were being influenced by him. Yeah, no, he definitely was. But give me an idea anyway. So we thought because those coaching videos were going down so well that we're going to start um, doing a little bit of coaching on the show here ourselves and not from the three of us numbskulls. We're going to we're going to do it with players who are actually masters of these arts, like fetching, like free kicks, maybe a bit of trash talkers, maybe a bit, you know, cornerback tackling, different stuff like that. So this week we're going to start off with the art of fetching in Gaelic football. And to help us with this one, Kevin Feely joins us on the line now. How's it going, Kevin? Not too bad, thanks. How are you? Come here. Here's a question I want to ask you. Is fetching something you're just good at or can it be coached? Can you get help with it? Um, I think you can definitely be coached at it. Um, but at the same time, I think that kind of timing you get for it is, is probably something that's more kind of natural in the DNA, I suppose. Uh, and then also obviously depends on your height and that as well. So I was lucky enough to take a bit of a stretch in my late teams, which uh, helps that aspect of things. And then I think the timing side of it, um, you're kind of born with it. But I think it can be it can be coached as well. Like we had, we had a manager who was like big on everyone being able to catch overhead, and he, he kind of very had very simple drills that he used to use that improved a lot of players who maybe struggled with overhead. Um, and got better at it but I think initial timing and stuff like that is, is probably more of a of a natural thing that it that isn't coached as such Yeah so what's the secret to it then? Um, I think I, like the secret to the timing aspect of it is probably repetition and, and then just I think it, took, it takes running under the ball a few times for you to get really good at it which was right. when I was kind of did a huge amount when I was minor so I used to that's the probably the art of catching out at the highest point is you nearly have to run under the ball a few times when you're when you're jumping to realise kind of what your highest point is, if you know what I mean. Yeah. You have to catch the ball at your highest point. Isn't that like when you're the furthest off the ground, that's when you need to be meeting the ball. Exactly. So that that's a full and your your highest jump possible. Um, and that's usually done at the end of a sprint when you're jumping off one leg. Um, and I remember I definitely did used to run under the ball a few times and you know, people get frustrated with you because it looks like you're kind of trying to flourish a catch like you know trying to catch it like we've actually just 
that's sometimes really what you have to do to kind of train yourself to be getting at the highest point. And then, you know, you just get better and better at doing that. One. It's hard to kind of do that, just kicking a ball off a wall and stuff. You, you can probably, for someone who's not good at it already, it's probably a good way of um, coach yourself, watching the ball into your hands and stuff like that. The coach used to say to try and follow the O'Neill sign from the ball all the way into your hands. And that was kind of a good coaching cue. But um, after that, you need, a, you need a keeper. You need a keeper kicking the ball out because it's a completely different than a ball kicked off the ground and coming back off a wall or coming a kick out of a hands is a different kind of trajectory to one that's kicked off the ground kick out. So I think you need to be practicing with a goalie or with someone who can kick it off a corner, off the, off the ground and that kind of get that backspin on the ball so that you can time your run into it and kind of get what the highest point is that you can catch it at. Right. And what, like, I suppose the the relationship with the goalkeeper is very important then, not only with signals, but like, you know, how he likes to float it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Different keepers have different trajectories. Like, obviously, you look at Cluxton, who had a very, has a very low trajectory when he's going along. It starts off like kind of, like a, in golf, it'd be like a stinger style kind of trajectory, which gradually rises. And then there's other keepers who just absolutely boom it, say, begging it. Sends absolutely miles or or pattern from Donegal and yeah they're an awful lot higher so it just just means the time of the jump is a little bit different probably with a Cluxton style or even our keeper McDonald it's similar you want to be starting your run from nearly the other side of the pitch because you you need to be catching it much flatter whereas with the um, the higher kick you don't necessarily have to have as long of a run up you need to make sure your time and your jump at the right time. Right. So do you like to stand in front? Say you're marking Brian Fenton. Do you like to be in front of him or behind him? It, yeah, it does depend like on how the, the match is going. You kind of get a, a sense early on of how you're going to be marked. Like, um, if you're marking someone who's trying to be behind you to spoil it behind you, um, I'd really prefer that. Like if he's giving you front position as long as you kind of start your run from right. a long way away. So it does take a good bit of practice where you're with the goalkeeper and with your other midfielder where you might kind of start on opposite sides or start in the middle and do a couple of dummy runs to one direction and double back to the other direction so that you're moving into the ball and if he's behind you it's a lot harder for him to break it if you're running onto a ball and you're a yard or two ahead of him whereas if you kind of get stuck under the flight of it say if you were just breaking straight from the middle out to the side Usually, by the time the ball gets there, you're you're stuck under it, uh, and then it becomes a much easier job for the person behind you to to break it. Uh, but then there's also people who try and mark you in front to try and stop you getting that run at it. Yeah. Um, and in that position, I kind of I like to just try and mess with their heads a little bit, say, and, and maybe line out at centre forward or somewhere like that, um, and see if they want to actually mark you that be back from the kick out and. And if they don't, if they play way in front, then I get a great, great opportunity to get a run and jump. And hopefully they're the ones that are standing underneath this. But it, it definitely, you get a lot of different ways of being defended. And even against Tyrone last year, they kind of would have studied doing myself and, and Tony Mullick and Fergie Conway were working the kickouts. And they kind of, they put a stop to it fairly quickly where everyone was making a, a run. The player who was marking him didn't do him, but some player just hit one of the drone players and just stood in front of you so that was nearly like a 2v1 situation you, were, you weren't getting a run up and in pick out so in that situation you're better off nearly just 
taking a spot to stand and staying under there and wrestling with your mark and you're right. favorable towards your own play. Yeah, so you'll have figured uh, you'll have figured takes, yeah. You'll have figured out pretty quickly if they, what they have learned. But say if you want, say I'm just using Brian Fenton for, as an example because that's kind of a clash I remember you and him having. What if you want to stand in front and he wants to stand in front? Is there a game of cat and mouse where you keep moving up and moving up and then you realise, geez, we're, we're way too close here? Yeah, it, it's, a, it, it's pure cat and mouse, exactly. Like if, In that situation, each person is trying to bring the other person into position that they don't want to be. Um, and usually it ends up with you're standing side to side and often not in that situation the ball just gets broken like neither one of you will catch it and you're kind of accepting that okay this is just going to be a, a brick ball kind of battle but then in that situation that's where you have to kind of use your teammates and see can you um, maybe double up on one side where you're getting uh, bringing him over to the opposite midfielder and see can your midfielder maybe get a little block on him and allow you to jump freely for, for a kick out which um for the majority of the catches that, that I have are probably uncontested because the, my other midfielder, say Tommy or, or Fergal, has put in a kind of a, a screen block touch, like a screen, like on, on my own man, and that's where the kind of relationship with the midfielder becomes so important. So, um, usually when you know you're coming up against someone of equal height, stature, fielding ability, you, you're you might catch the odd note them, but you're kind of relying on, on using your teammates using a bit of a bit of know-how on, on, to try and release yourself to, to do it so it's there's a lot more thinking goes into the kickouts and into the catch than actually going 1v1 and trying to lord it over someone because at inter-county level it tends to not happen often like yeah, no, it's hard to catch. Like, I mean, and, and at what point would you ever decide to break it? Like, I mean, there's obviously egos amongst fetchers, and I don't mean an ego in a bad way, but good fetchers like to fetch it. Is it almost like admitting the other fellow's better than you if you start breaking it off him? Yeah, there, there definitely is a bit of ego in there. I've definitely had that, you know, thrown at me by teammates and managers that I probably, when I'm against someone who's equally good at catching, like, if you both go off to catch it, and you let the other person catch it instead of trying to break it off them. It looks like you were doing it for, for ego rather than trying to break it to the real team. But yeah. um, you kind of would, you'd work on that in training as well, where you want your people who are who are under the break to to be in such positions that if you feel like you're maybe not getting a good run at this ball or you're in more of a wrestling match with your opponent, you have an area that you're trying to break it to. And um, we used to work on that a good bit in training. Wing forward, wing back in the position, so that I don't even have to kind of look I'm trying to break it. I just know that if I get it to that side, they're going to be there. Uh, but that that usually happens in somewhat that kind of wrestling type midfielder. And I would have really struggled with that when I was younger and a good bit lighter, um, trying to catch the ball where someone's trying to just link in your arm maybe or or just staying shoulder to shoulder with you. But right, you know, when you, you get a bit more size and stuff like that, and you start working with players on where you're going to break it you, kind of, you can negate that as well by just instead of focusing on catching you can just hold off your man and break with one arm and break the ball with the other arm so uh, usually what you do when you end up in a bit of a wrestling match Right so like I mean when you talk about the wrestling matches like obviously some lads are brilliant at getting up but then there's some really effective midfielders like you say who don't really get up 
but are just happy to throw one arm across you and maybe even catch it in one hand or do something like that. That's who you, you might see them more at club level, would you, or would you see them at inter-county level as well? Um, yeah, definitely both. I think it's important for a midfielder to be able to to do both sides of things, to be able to you know, run and to be able to kind of stand on the last man and either break it or catch it with one hand. But um, yes, yeah, sure, I would have got, but the biggest example I could think was when I was, say, a club game, a Leinster club game where we played um, Gary Castle in in the 11th and David Shocknessy was still playing for them at the time. Oh, yeah. And, like, yeah, I was giving away a few, a few kilos, I think it was 18 or 19 or whatever, and he was, you know, he might have been coming at the end of his career, but he was a very, very solid size in his field and sort he just, just let me jump for a single ball, held me on for one arm and broke it to the advantage of his players every time and that kind of taught me that you're not always going to get it your own way in terms of running jump, jumping off one leg and, and getting to feel this and so that was a great lesson to learn from someone who'd obviously it's such a as a midfielder and I think that kind of helped me to in, bring that into my own game as well that you know you have to be able to stand and wrestle sometimes as well yeah. as just He's... going for the Glorious catches. Shock to see, I have to say, he wasn't a stylish midfielder by any means, but he was a very effective one because we had good fetchers in Noel Garvin and Porrick Clancy and they, they always struggled you know, against the likes of him probably because of his uh, of his strength. So who are the best fetchers in the game then? Best fetchers? Um, so I always get a ridiculous amount of marks. You know, Fintano in Galway. Oh yeah, yeah. About six foot six, actually makes height as well. He's got great hands, well, so he's up there. I think Aidan O'Shea is unreal. Um, yeah. Again, he's not actually as tall as as you think, and some who's so huge, he gets off the ground and his timing is spot on. Um, he'd be excellent as well. Uh, Barry for Kerry is a spoiler and a fetcher is probably as good as you get. Yeah, to great and job on Fenton a couple of times and when we played Kerry a couple of years ago, he was he would have been starting both games and very hard man to beat in the air. And in terms he's of got, he's very fast, is he? Yeah, but yeah, he's very athletic, yeah. 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 Brennan's Gary Brennan's probably faster again than him. Oh, yeah. He's very hard to mark because he's he'd be want some kind of will prefer for a flat trajectory kick out because he's for this getting a couple of out in front of you um, so he's really hard to mark that way but and um, then obviously you know my, my, Michael Murphy he'd be great for the fetches from before but I guess put with down the middle and stuff like that so they're probably the main lads that come to mind in there that, that was interesting that um, you say because I always thought that if if you want to spoil a midfielder and break the ball off him, it shouldn't be that hard to do. But you were saying that you like a fella behind you because you get the yard on him and you can time it. You know, but if if you if you hit the pitch of it perfect, he he can't make he can't get that break in. That's it exactly. That's the um, relationship with deeper and timing of the kick out becomes so important because, like I was saying earlier, if you get if just or your your run, like as the ball's in the air, it means he's hacked it up then and then it's near impossible to catch it because he's right up your hole as you're trying to catch it. So um but if you can start your run from far enough away that you're running into the ball without having to break strides, 
it's re- it's really really hard to for someone to break that on you. I, I kind of learned that the hard way off from Mac and Brennan against Taylor, where I wasn't aware how fast he was. I gave, gave him a couple of yards, and sure he was catching it in five yards of space by the time I got to him. Like so, right. Um, it it does depend on on the timing of the kick out. Like if you if you do end up getting under it a little bit, it becomes very hard. But can you can be smart with that as well, where you you stutter your stride enough that yeah. he goes into the back of you, and then you know you fall over and you're off and you're getting a free then. Uh, but it's it's kind of when you're out in front, it's a lot easier to to catch it as long as the, the timing with the goalkeeper is on it. Right, right, okay. Come here before one last question. Here is that on goalkeeper signals, have you ever figured out an opposition goalkeeper signals? Um, not overly well. Just, just we very rarely would have the ball kicked out long against us because uh, we have big midfielders. Yeah, true. Um, the, yeah, the the only one you kind of cop is the one where you get a runner in opposition and they just say, "All right, brand work." throwing this one down the middle and I'd say universally that signal is both hands up in the air <laughs> I've, never, I've never seen a different signal for when keep your hands in the air and you're like okay this is going 60, 70 yards down the middle of the field so they're the only kind of read you get on it but it's, it's, it's very hard to read um, keep opposition keepers these days like the kickouts are so important and they put people with so much work in and short and mid-distance kickouts that it's nearly impossible to get reading them these days. Yeah, one actually another question has popped in my mind. Here's another game of cat and mouse. So you're obviously known as a really good fetcher, and the lad you're marking isn't, and all he's trying to do is drag you out of the middle. So he's making a run to the wing all the time. At what point do you go? I'm letting this lad off, or at what point do you go? It's he's too like if I let him off, he's going to be picked out. It's not an easy situation to be in. No, it's not, and it's again something you learn with experience of how far you can follow your man and still be able to get across to the other side of the pitch while the ball's in the air. Um, it's an awful lot easier in pitches like Connacht in Newbridge because it's it's a really narrow pitch and you can almost afford to you know, not have to mark your man and just try and read the flight of the ball and read the keeper's body position. Um, but then sure you get up to Croke Park if you give your man enough space on the sideline, he can be easily picked out. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I would definitely... You know, you, you figure out very early on what that your your own man is trying to drift you out of the uh, contest, and uh, you'd you'd basically be trying to kind of tempt the keeper. You're 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 watching the keeper more than watching the man. Like you're kind of right. following your man a little bit, but you're trying to see has the keeper seen that you're maybe not as tight to your man as he could be. And then if if you see that he's given up on him as an option, you start creeping back towards where the ball is going, and then. That's a great situation because usually if you're jumping for it, then it's pretty much uncontested as well because your man's away the other side of the pitch. But um, there's definitely a, a bit of experience involved in that. Um, but it's it's, uh, it's definitely an awful, an awful lot easier on the tighter pitches. Yeah, exactly. Come here before I let you go. Are you cracking up without training? I, I see some people trying to say that intercounty players are getting their lives back and now, you know, to see how important that their the rest of their life is and all this kind of thing. And we were saying on the show two weeks ago that I would say it's the opposite, in fact, that they're actually tearing their hair out trying to get back and do a bit of training and stuff. Where where do you sit with that? Yeah, definitely the, the tearing the hair out situation. I think um, it's 
it, it would be grand if you could be doing something else with your life while you have this time off, but sure, what can you do? Because, you know, within yeah. five kilometres, there's absolutely nothing you can be doing. So, um, no, absolutely itching to get back into this sort of train and more so just, we're coming up with ourselves, trying to keep fit, but not having something competitive to do, absolutely. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't sit right with you. You're just kind of dying for some sort of match, even if it was like a five-a-side soccer match, anything at all, just to be competitive with it again. Yeah. Um, but hopefully now we're getting some opportunity in trees and over the last few weeks to, to do something together. But um, yeah, no, definitely tearing the hair out at the moment. Yeah, well, listen, to, to, to lift your spirits, you'll be able to go on a nice leisurely walk around a walkway around the GA field now very soon. Very soon. So, <laughs> that, that'll have to do you for Come here, Kevin. Thanks very much for taking the call. No hassle at all, Lord. Yes, Grant. So I have to say, lads, I learned a bit there and I thought that, always thought that if you really wanted to spoil a good midfielder, just stand behind him and spoil him and break him. And of course, this is exactly what Kevin Feely wants you to do. <laughs> like, I mean, so, you know, maybe these uh, these um, tutorials are definitely helping my analysis going forward, Conan. Anyways, I don't know about yours. Yeah, I'm just really happy you didn't get myself or yourself to talk about fetching as well. Hey, or me, or me. Jeez, I have to say, it's it's one skill I never mastered. I never, oh. I, I couldn't, I couldn't meet the ball at my highest point, and I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. I was going under it. I would, you know, get it just as I'm coming back down, and the ball might actually knock me over when I'd eventually catch it. It was, I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't master it. But then again, I was never in a position where I, I always needed to, um, to master it. I suppose so. Maybe well, I didn't just, practice it. Yeah, I was just going to ask though, like, were you the same as me? Because you're around the same height as me. Are you six, six one almost? I'm um, your man than you now, Conan. <laughs> but like I've had that embarrassment sort of growing up where it's like oh you know you're tall enough to put you in the midfield and like I can't catch for shit like you know so then you're always caught out and you're expected to be decent in the air and I really I'm just like you I can't I can't time every time I've caught a good ball above my head I'm always very surprised you know yeah. it's like I close my eyes and suddenly the ball's in my hand you have to like, take your eye off the ball for, for a second at the end you know because it's above your head I think that's what makes it kind of so intimidating a skill yeah. yeah, and you're so you're so high off the ground. Like I mean, and it's just reckless in a way, isn't it? I think you're just born. Like, well, Kevin thinks that the whole timing issue on it is a, is a, a natural skill that you you have, you know? Because like I mean, you're you're timing a kick out that's way in the air to meet it at your very highest point, while other people are around you, you know, jostling and you know, it's just like I mean, it's it's the for me, it's the most spectacular skill in the game. The best fetcher I've probably seen is Daryl O'Shea. He he was just sensational at it. The timing, the the height he got up off the ground, the style, you know, I have to say since we were watching the the old games, Jerry Jerry McEntee's right up there now as well. Since the two games I saw him. Vinnie Murphy, sensational, even though not a midfielder, but back in his day, obviously with the kicks off the ground, my God, he was spectacular fetcher. Yeah, Vinnie, Vinnie Murphy's a good example of sort of what Kevin Feely's talking about there. He used his body really well, like, you know, when he was like a, an arsey sort of player, like, you know, where you <laughs> couldn't get around it. So even if he stood from behind and tried to break it, you're afraid to get in front of him. So he decides when he's going to go for it. He's using that body and then he goes for it. Like, that's probably where, where Feely comes into it. But McEntee is just, 
he's he's like a different type of, to like you know Kieran Whelan or Darrow Shea or Toho or anything. He's like Patsy Bradley, I would say, where he just uses his body as a missile and just hurdles through the air and comes back down on top of his neck, but he still has the ball. Like you know, it's just a different different type of player. I knew you'd get Patsy Bradley's name into that conversation. <laughs> it was only a matter. It was only a matter of time. Even ahead of Anthony Doyle as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, Patsy Bradley's one of his heroes. Um, what about you, Connor? Who who springs to your mind when you think of Fetchers? Um, there was a big omission from that list, Wooly. It's uh, the great Willie Joe Padden. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, but now I wouldn't have seen him, you see, too much. I don't remember him playing. Yeah, well, he was my, like, I, I'm old enough to know uh, he's, he was my earliest idol playing for Mayo. But I was just looking up his height before we, we came on here. He's only five foot 11, maybe six foot. But the thing about Willie Joe Baden and like this, this, it, I think there's a different category of fielders, let's say, aside from O'Shea, uh, Anthony Dole and some of those lads, is lads that were a bit smaller that had, but had an unbelievable leap. Eamon O'Hara so, is another one that jumps to mind yeah. with that Exactly, yeah. So, like every time Willie Joe Patton uh, made a, made a fetch, it was like something out of a highlight reel, and it always helped when he had the kind of bloodied bandage around his head and the long hair and the mustache as well. It was just really kind of uh, just really kind of picturesque. But uh, just when you mentioned Daryl Shea there, uh, I remember um, uh, Mickey and O'Sullivan from Kerry. He uh, he was asked to 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 teach the the South African rugby team or give them a lesson in fielding before the 2007 Rugby World Cup. So he showed them 10 minutes of Darrow O'Shea fielding actually is an example of, of how it should be done. Um, so there was Darrow O'Shea and then Kieran Whelan again, which I just, I think his fetches look more spectacular because he used to wear those big, massive goalie yeah. gloves, you know, like the all sport gloves, big white yeah. gloves and they made him stand out a bit more. So they'd be my three. And it's kind of, it's, I, I think it's telling that none of them really belong to the current era because Goal, you know, uh, goal kickouts aren't as contested as much anymore. Even though there's probably current a few current players that would, that 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 definitely have it, but it's not as it's not a feature of the game as much as it used to be anymore. And 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 I thought it was interesting, Kevin Feely talking about a difficult opponent, uh, David O'Shaughnessy, who played for Westmead, a big bull of a man, like not a stylish fetcher, but would just lean into you, stick an arm across you, and catch it with the other hand. Like I mean, you know, these kind of dogs in midfield that that. You know, you see them. I think you see them a lot at club level. Even though Kevin said they're at Inter County as well. You know, like a good club midfielder, you just nobody ever gets the better of him. You know, and you're you're almost guaranteed possession in midfield because this lad is able to use his body strength to just kind of put the other maybe more talented fetcher completely off and and rattle him. Because I was mentioning to Kevin about David O'Shaughnessy, like you know, Noel Garvin would have been a far superior fetcher to him, but would have struggled with him. Do you know? I suppose styles make fights, Colin. Yeah, and as opposed to talking at the club level there, like it's even more spectacular because everybody knows where the ball's going. Like you know, it's it's very obvious, and it's getting just landed on top of that guy if it's David O'Shaughnessy or whoever, and and he still manages to always come out of it. And you know, I don't want to harp back to Patsy Bradley, but two thousand four, he did get the better of David O'Shaughnessy in Crook Park, and that was one of his, his all time great performances for Derry in the quarterfinal. Right, very good. Okay, so there's two mentions. Come here. Remember we were talking about GEA drills? Did any see Connor Laverty putting up a tweet? Um, he was doing a blockdown drill. Now, anyone who's played GA would have done this drill 101 times coming up through the ranks. And like I used to hate it. So it's basically for anybody listening who hasn't seen Connor's tweet. I couldn't believe how many compliments this thing was getting, like how much people were saying this is incredible, you know, and all this. And like, I mean, so he's standing there. He's going to kick a ball and the young people are coming trying to block him down. And that's basically it. Now, like I said, I hated it. I hated blocking down. 
um, because you'd usually be cold. You're standing in a line. You know what I mean? You, your heart rate wasn't up. So I didn't even like it. And I hated even kicking it because you didn't know whether to to drive it. Like you're going to drive it out over the sideline if he misses it or you're actually just barely tapping it to make the block really easy for him. Or else a fella who was blocking it down could come in really heavy on your standing leg. And you're like, what? You know, I, I don't know. There's no other drill, Connor, probably to practice blocking down than this one. But it's, no. ten of, it's 10 a penny. I don't know why people were so impressed with it. I uh, see. Some people love the misery, Willie. Maybe not too. <laughs> it's like it's the same people who love playing cornerback, love blocking the ball down. You know, I, I just watched Connor's um, uh, earlier on this morning. I just thought that the young fellas looked to be getting a great kick out of it. It was really, it wasn't just blocking, the, blocking down. It was the real was the real kind of um, kamikaze Superman dive, you know, over yeah. the ball. So I'd say, and you know, there was only a few of them, so they weren't waiting around for too long, and you know, they seemed to knock a bit of crack out of it. But um, that that flying back, I think, is um, it's it's a relic of a of a previous age. That, like the only of the current generation, I can only remember like Colin Boyle is a great exponent of it. But if you Good, yeah. if you commit yourself to that, if you get sold a dummy you know, you look like an awful fool. So it's, it's probably not the worst thing that's going out. It is. It's, it's a Diane Arconnen for two reasons is you can't block hand passes um, is number one. And Dermot Crow has a good piece in the Sunday Indo that we're going to talk about in part two about, you know, the amount of hand passes in the game versus years ago um, and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. And another thing is like what Connor says, the skill levels have gone so high now that the dummy solo is just going to make a fool out of you. Like, I mean, it's probably is a skill that is going to die out. Yeah, like this drill is sort of when you land on the trainer on Tuesday and the manager has his stats from Sunday and he's saying, like, there were no blocks the last day, so everybody get in the line and, and we're going to fix the no blocks by me letting you block. Like, you know, it's it's, it's not a realistic drill. Either. You're right, like, the player doesn't know what to do with the ball and it's like, it, that will never happen where you're just letting somebody come in and, and block you. But then you you always have that little uh, so-and-so who will throw a dummy during this drill. And you oh, I've often done it. I've often done it, yeah. I've often done that. <laughs> But here's here's the other thing. Often, say you're standing and you're right-footed. Like, often the fella's coming from your right side, blocking that right foot, which would never happen in a game. You know what I mean? It would very rarely happen in a game that he'd come on your side because you you just moved the ball the other, you know, the other side. Yeah. And, like, were you would you have been tentative kicking the ball as well, like, not wanting to drive it a mile away if he missed it? Well, well, that's it. Like that, like that, that does happen, doesn't it? Because yeah. <laughs> so then the next kick, you're not kicking a property, and this is when the manager's looking at you, and then you're just tap, you're right? tapping it towards yeah. his hands. Yeah, you're tapping it towards his hands. Uh, it's, it's just a silly drill. Like you know, like this is actually, I think it's a really good uh, move to put into the middle of one of those like slogging circuits. You know, where you're running side to side, and you're going backwards, you're doing press ups, you get up, you block, you, you know, and it's just a good thing to throw in there because it's tiring, but. I don't know what you get out of it, mate. Like at that age, the ones uh, Connor Laverty was doing it with, it looks like a good sort of fundamentals drill yeah. and they seem to enjoy it. Yeah, no, exactly. That's it. It's for underage, you know, it's a, one of those fundamentals to get them used to it. But it's not, you wouldn't really be lining up seniors with that kind of thing, would you? Even though I think I have one, <laughs> one time or another, you know, but like, I mean, that's the way it is. Another one, lads, is Eamon McGee. So he was tweeting here during the week, right? So it was an article, I think it was in the Tribune 14 years ago. And it was the sexiest, what was it? Here's the here's the intro to it. With sexiness all the rage in the GEA in recent years, Claire O'Matany looks at the effects summer Sundays are having on the female population and then looks even closer at the men that are making it happen as she hands out her awards to football and hurling's finest. And then it goes, additional talent spotting. Talent, you know, additional talent spotting by Olivia Dial. 
Fanula McCarthy, Sarah McInerney and Una Mulaney. And I nearly fell off my chair. Una Mulaney, objectifying men like this. I was absolutely horrified. Um, but on the list was Sean O'Gahalbeen. I think he won it. Finney and Hanley, the Brogan brothers. Um, Alan Brogan, very lucky to get in there. Uh, Tom, Tom, <laughs> Kelly, Tom Kelly from Leash. And then Eamon McGee and Paul Galvin, who probably be lucky to make the top 100, if we're being honest. Like, I mean, not exactly lookers. But, like, I mean, I was just absolutely um, horrified at how men, okay, it was 14 years ago, so will we cut them a break at them treating us like pieces of meat, um, Colin, or will we get horrified with it? Yeah, it was a different time. Like, I think, I think <laughs> we, all, we all did things back then. But I can't believe my GAR notes today conducted, it was me writing down, Eamon McGee is doing well for himself on this. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, they're talking about his curly hair. It was hardly as good as Tom Parsons. Like, you know, it wasn't uh, oh, no, no. It wasn't that good. And Tom Kelly, I was thinking as well, he's doing, but then I was thinking there probably is a market for Tom Kelly. Like, you know, he, he does have his own... I'd say, what am I talking about? <laughs> Woolly, Woolly, when you, when you said you were horrified, was it not horrified by your own omission? <laughs> I'd be looking, I'd be doing well to make any of those um, lists, but it, it is the great contradiction, and I notice a lot um, when I worked in News Talk, not just the presenters and off the ball, but presenters across the whole station. There are no problem commenting on men's looks, and in a way, for men to comment on men's looks, it's almost like you're so comfortable with your own, you know, in your own skin, you're you're confident enough to be able to say another man's good looking. But if you're to say a woman sportswoman is good looking, you'd be absolutely ran out of the building. You know what I mean? It's, it's a huge contradiction. Like you're not allowed to say a woman sports, a woman GA player is good looking, but it's perfectly normal to say Keena Sullivan is absolutely gorgeous, man. There's no doubt about that. But if you say... Uh, Nicole Owens, she, she's lovely. What? There's more to her than there's more to her than her looks. Connor, I'll throw this to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, what can I say? But I didn't think we'd be having this conversation today. And also, uh, what what sort of rabbit hole is the GR going down where you're talking to Paul Meskell about sex scenes one week and then you're on about objectifying men and women the next week? And I, I, think, I think I'll leave it at that. Connor, I think the question was who is the sexiest sportswoman? And you need to answer it now. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, it's not something I would ever discuss on this show, who is the sexiest sportswoman, but if a newspaper ran it, a tabloid newspaper, I would buy it and I would read it. I, would, I am that shallow, I would definitely read it, men or women. Um, but that's, but it, like this, uh, the reason I put that in, because it, it probably segues, segues fairly well into the next one, it's about equality between men uh, sports people and women sports people. And it leads me towards our friend on the show, uh, Peter Leahy, who has made the decision um, this is a quote from him. He says, we've made the decision that anyone who wants to go to Australia or whatever, we'd have to admit from the panel and carry on regardless because it's what's best for Mayo. There's no other sport I know that you can play both in the same season. The demands of inter-county football is so high. You can see that you can't even be a dual player now. You, can, you can't play football and hurling at inter-county level now. And it's just an impossibility. So he's obviously got four players, Sarah Rowe, uh, the Kelly sisters, uh, Grace and Eve and uh, Aileen Gilroy, um, going to Australia. And when I saw this first, my initial reaction was, geez, that's lousy, Peter. Will you let them go and uh, come back? And then I stopped and thought to myself, would it be accepted at inter-county level with the males, with the, with the men's game? And do we want equality? And Peter Lee, he's very, very consistent by saying he wants the same for the women's game as the men's game. And then I kind of started thinking about him when he's a, he's actually right it wouldn't be tolerated at inter-county level in the men so why does he have to tolerate not having his best players for the national league and have them swan him back in you know after playing a different code and having to get back used to the round ball 
And then I'm thinking, Colin, he's absolutely right. He's consistent in that he wants to treat both codes exactly the same. So I initially had the exact same thought process as you. Initially, it was like, Peter, come on, then yeah. he's right. But there's a third level now where I looked it up and like the women's game, is there's only seven matches and it ends in March. The men's starts in March and doesn't end until August, September if you make the finals. So that's taken you out for the full season of Intercounty. GA here, like whereas the women can be finished in March and like even their finals finish on that same month and then you're back during the league and, and ready for championship. And I, I think if, if the men's presenting that early and they were only playing seven games, we'd all be mad to get them back. It's just we, we can't the way the season is falling over there. So I think whilst the AFLW is like that and they're only playing that amount of games, then let them do it and let them come back and, and enjoy the best of both worlds. He says our National League is going to be destroyed. He says you have a big sponsor like Little too. Um, are they going to continue to want to be involved with our 25 stars? There's 25 girls over there at the moment um, like that. So I don't know. I do I do accept. When are they back? Are they back halfway through the National League? Conan, is that what you're saying? Yeah, so they'd be back. Like, well, if they make the finals, they're back at the end of March. So they miss most of the National League. But like, they'd be back halfway through it if they, if they came back at a normal time. If they're out in the regular season sort of thing. Yeah. It feels like foot, it feels like Gaelic football at club level, where you can go to America and come back and play with your club. But this is supposed to be intercounty football, uh, Connor. Yeah, I was just saying. I was just about to say that I think that might like the 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 league has expanded in like it's only it's only been around a couple of years and expanded. So you might be left with an issue in a couple of months' time where mm. the the Australian season is expanded, for example, and then players have a far more difficult decision to make. Because uh, I was I have the exact same of as the two e. Because when I heard it first, I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I can absolutely see where Peter Lee is coming from." And even like, even if um, even if they do arrive back during the league, I mean, there's probably a training base there, you know, like a like a base of training that they put in before the league. And now you know that the players that are going to Australia, they're not, they haven't been picked to go to Australia for no reason. They come back and they'd be fit and they'd be able to fit in. But in terms yeah. of like, planning, but your best players, you see, you're missing your best players. That's the thing, that, and and the thing like the thing why it's so relevant to Mayo is just, I was just looking at the the list of players that kind of went over as well, and I think outside of Mayo have four. Obviously, their best players, and then outside of that, I think it only I think the the most of any individual county was two. So you could probably make a case for one or two, but when you're talking about four players that are absolutely essential, I, I can I can understand where where Peter Lee is is coming from, and like if you if if the if the female game wants to be judged the same as the male, well then like you you can't you can't have one rule for one and one rule for another. But as it stands at the moment, I think Conan's point is valid, in that you can I think you can feas you could probably get away with it. You can feasibly go and play in Australia, you know, live your lifestyle, get paid to play down there and then come back and have a, be back in enough time to make an impact on the championship. Right. Okay. So that's the thing. But like, I mean, he's not saying they can't go to Australia. They can still go. Yeah. They just can't play with Mayo that year. They can come back the next year and commit to one or the other. And like, I mean, that's a decision I made a lot of years going to America. You know, do I stay around or do I go or what do I do? And, uh, yeah, I don't. I I, I didn't realise they're back halfway through the league. But then again, it's still the league. This is serious yeah. stuff, Conan. You know, this isn't yeah. isn't. And is this supposed to be serious stuff, or is it? Ah, oh, let them go over there, and you know, they will come back in good shape. But they're not. They're missing your the start of your season. Like I mean, yeah. I don't know. Four of them. I there is no way. There is no way Jim Gavin would have allowed Kieran Kilkenny, Brian Fenton, Stephen Cluxton. There's no goalie in Australian rules. Uh, Conor Callaghan and Dear McConnelly head over to Australia and land back mid mid league. No, like that's that's probably where Peter's thing most valid. And like I did chat to Neve Kelly a couple of weeks ago, and I was sort of going along that line. Like you're probably flying fit now coming back from Australia, and 
And she was like, to be honest, like these guys have been busting their balls since December or whatever in Mayo. Like, and she was doing the same out in Australia. But like, that's a big chunk. It's training camps. It's a lot of training, a lot of tactics. Yeah, like so we can see why Peter Lee'd be like, I don't really want them coming straight back in. Same time again, I go back to the the men's thing. Like if you know if Derry could have Connor Glass back or Callum Brown, you know, in April. I would yeah, you take them. Yeah. 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 Okay, so it's hard to know. Like I mean, we're not really coming down on any side here. It's, it definitely, no, it's definitely a difficult one because I have fierce sympathy for the girls involved because it's a great opportunity to do both. But is it having their cake and eating it too? You know, that's the question. You know, that it's a hard decision needs to be made. And then I'm looking at Leahy and he's making sense. It's not an easy one to actually, you know, come down hard on. It's definitely a difficult one. Um, there's no doubt about that. Right, lads, we'll leave it there and we'll come back with a newspaper review. Come here, I want you to talk us through the goal you scored in the county final after 15 seconds. I want you to tell me when you had goal on your mind. Yeah, you've probably had a few 15 seconds experiences yourself. All right, lads, we won't spend too long on the newspaper review. We're, we're almost out of time already. Um, but we want to start here with the Sunday Indo um, and there's only one GA piece in the Sunday Indo Joe Brawley was talking about boxing which I read um, you have to say Brawley's entertaining no matter what he's writing about plenty of anecdotes in it you know our favourite uh, you know thing about Joe's writing but look he is very entertaining Dermot Crow's piece is all about kind of the evolution of Gaelic football back from the 80s I think it's because oh, we're seeing all these nostalgia games and you know we're seeing the football back then and it can be very basic and he was watching the 1981 uh, final so he was talking about some stats from that so the the headline of this is winds of change blowing the right way um, there are more hand passes these days but fewer errors higher skill levels and a better scoring rate I think most people would probably agree with that so he's saying the 81 final uh, that's Kerry and Offaly, had 82 hand passes. Last year's All-Ireland final replay had 426. <laughs> like, this is unbelievable. In 81, the ball was kicked 146 times outside the scoring uh, attempts. Last year's final replay had 97. But those 97 were likely to have been of a high quality, whereas a good many of the 146 from 81 are best forgotten. And that's definitely something that you 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 see from back then. It was almost like hurling where, and hurling's moved away from that kind of clear it uh, game into a more possession-based game pretty much in the last maybe five years. But he, he had one sequence, a 50-second passage of play in the 81 final. And he said in the first half, spoke volumes for the uh, witless spirit that prevailed. A kick out from Furlong was fielded in the middle of the field by Parik Dunn. He kicked deep into Kerry territory where possession was turned over. Paddy Lynch kicked into the middle of the field. Offley's Tomas O'Connor won it back. O'Connor went long. Kerry reclaimed possession. John O'Keefe gathered uh, possession and hand passed to Tim Kennelly. The centre-back drop-kicked it up the middle where Liam Currens intercepted. He kicked for distance. Kennelly won it back. Kennedy chanced another drop kick but scuffed his execution the ball going over the sideline like I mean this is frantic stuff Colin but like it is desperate as well but again like we always have to give the context you know when we're doing the nostalgia shows is the context is that's the way the game was played back then so like it, when you when you compare it to today's game it's unfair yeah and I actually was really happy to see Tomas O'Shea in that piece as well because remember we were yeah. like, and this was 2005 it wasn't that long ago we were looking at the Tyrone Kerry 
final and O'Shea we were both saying just kicked so many balls away like he grew up as my hero like I used to play wing back and I loved Tomas O'Shea and I was horrified looking back at that game so it was great just to see him talking in that piece about cringing at some of the stuff but he was just being told to kick the ball in and they actually said that we overdid the Donaghy thing but again just being told get the ball and get the ball and that was the right thing to do and they probably thought he had a good game then what I thought was most interesting about that, like obviously we all we all, we could all see that the hand passing's gone up and the kick passing's gone down, but there's like twice as many passing now. Like I think there's about two hundred and fifty from his stats from the eighty one final, two hundred and fifty passes, and about five hundred almost, you know, in today's game. It's interesting. Yeah. Like I wonder what the hell was happening back then. It's yeah, it's about the stoppage time, isn't it? Because like freeze used to be taken from the ground and like kickouts would be it might take a minute for a keeper to kick the ball out, whereas goalkeepers are restarting now within uh, 10 seconds. I think the ball is in play for so much longer these days. And it, like, it's down to the fitness levels and stuff like that. But I, I, I took that out as well. I think they said that like the ball, I think the 1989 final between Mayo and Cork, that the ball was only in play for 31 minutes or something like that, yeah. which seems a bit ridiculous from a 70-minute game. But that was when they changed the free kicks from being yes. on the ground to, you know, at sidelines. That was in, I think that was in 1990. A Congress in 1990. This is Dermot Crow. Um, here's the quote from that 1989 final between Cork and Mayo. There was only 31 minutes and 19 seconds of actual playing time. Stoppage time amounted to 43 minutes and 16 seconds. That's outrageous. <laughs> on average, on average, each stoppage lasted 26 seconds. So at Congress in 1990, those reforms seeking swifter restarts from sidelines and freeze were voted in enthusiastically among the most enlightened and successful reforms in the game's history. There is no doubt about that, lads, that these are the most re- reformative changes, you know, kick and freeze and sidelines from the hands to speed, you know, to speed up the game. But that's the thing, like, I mean, there's a lot more hand passes. The gas thing is we're, we're, we're comparing... 426 hand passes to one of the best all Ireland in one of the best all Irelands we've seen in 10 years. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. uh, hand passing now in those games was used to get you out into a bit of open space to give a good diagonal ball. You know what I mean? It, 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 those attacks generally ended with a good kick pass where I think we were coming off the 10 years of desperate hand passing and breaking the lines and all that, that those all Irelands were a breath of fresh air. I think because of the football that we had had to endure for the 10 years previously, Connor. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a point made in the piece at some stage where um, it said that uh, there was only, in one of the games that was analysed, there was only one time where there was a sequence of more than four hand passes or something yeah. like that. So like while last year they tried to bring it in that there could only be three, there was no need to do it back then because it just happened naturally anyway. As you said, that like a kick pass, a hand pass was used to get somebody in a position to to do a kick pass. Whereas uh, just uh, elaborating on what Colin said there as well is that like um, what Tomas O'Shea was saying that like, he doesn't mind, like people don't mind hand passing as long as it's uh, constructive or as long as it tries to be, you know, some sort of, you know, there's some sort of ambition to it that it's not just recycling for the sake of it over and over again. And that's, that's the good the thing. thing about like, nobody will say, nobody will say about the replayed final last year that because there was nearly 450 hand passes in it, there was a bad game. It's one of the best games, one of the best games of the modern era by by a long shot. So like, it's, it's just important that, and, and I was glad that what I thought the piece did really well was drill down into that, that like, you have to be, you know, you have to, there has to be a bigger interpretation of the stats than just, oh, there was 400 hand passes, hence the, hence it might have been a bad game. That's not the case at all. Yeah. So and I think, I think there was a good, uh, there was a good acknowledgement that like, um, that the, that the game has evolved to such a, le- a level, whereas at its, at its height, obviously there's still some games where, you know, like there people just hand pass for the sake of it, but at its height, when the elite teams are playing it, that they've, they've, they've the balance right now. 
as, as the game demands now between hand passing and kick passing to make it the, the best product it can be we did we didn't do much 80s football but like I mean this is what Dermot Crow is talking about here the 80s football and that 50 second sequence of play it was more get it down there and good players could win their own ball well you know and that was kind of what made a good player then in the 90s we saw a bit of a mix with that we still saw some aimless clearances but we saw more hand passing and Donegal maybe introducing that into the game and for me the noughties then was the best standard of Gaelic football in that you look at that 05 final between Tyrone and Kerry. Tyrone had a balance of uh, working wing forwards, um, you know, great structured ball into a two-man full forward line, but using the hand pass to get themselves far enough up the field. Um, plenty of kick passing, but the one thing, Connor, and that's what Connor's talking about, that every attack went forward by both teams. So, like, I mean, it, it was 100 miles an hour up and back down the field because they always went forward. It, the ha- like, Connor, Connor's right, it's the hand passes. It's not the amount of hand passes. It's the backwards second hand passes. Yeah, it's all about intent, isn't it? Like, you know, when, yeah. and those hand passes in the Dublin Kerry game especially, they, yeah, they were trying to set up attacks quickly because both teams knew they had to do that quickly. And, like, that yeah. game's a good example. I definitely agree with you, Willie, I think. The best era so far of Gaelic football has been the Noddies. Like I, I definitely do think that. I think probably the most perfect game or games it was probably Dublin v Kerry, and that it had everything. Like you know, if you were able to create an era now off the back of that, those two finals, or especially that that replayed game, like you would have probably the best era because you know it has everything and it it has that sort of tactical noise as well like where you wouldn't see yeah. any naivety going on or anything like that but most importantly it's the intent like you know when we talk, like they had that many hand passes 400 and whatever else but it had Kieran Kilkenny just taking men on and Sean O'Shea taking men on and it had the kick passing and it had the high balls and it had the risk and Owen Merchant running from the halfway line you know it just it seemed to have everything and if you could just bottle that up now and spread it around the country we'd be in a very good place yeah, we definitely would. So the Sunday Times had one GA article. It was Dennis Walsh again. Um, he spoke to Philly McMahon, uh, McMahon. And just probably not an awful lot we can discuss here, lads, from a football point of view. It's more about the work he does in prisons. And, you know, the headline is, um, I'm helping good guys who made bad choices. Philly McMahon lost his brother to a heroin addiction eight years ago and is now focused on coaching others and making a difference. And most people know that about Philly, you know, at this stage. He talks a lot about how he got started um, with his business. Um, he talks about being in the in the prisons. He's he's currently doing fitness videos for the Portlaoise prison um, during lockdown. So, like, I mean, we know Philly's an impressive character, so it's worth a, it's worth a read. Although I, w- I would probably say a lot of people know a lot of that stuff about Philly um, already, Conan. Yeah, like, and what I actually like most about that, like, <laughs> it does sort of, um, it says a lot about him that you take that for granted. That's the stuff he does. That's the great yeah. stuff he does. I love reading, he was talking about playing one game this year against Kerry, and he just had that innocent quote where it was like, it kept my man scoreless. It's <laughs> like, you know, here's Philly McMahon, he's done everything and he's won everything and he's talking about keeping his man scorers in a league match this year and it's like that's just the purity I think of all those Dublin defenders as well they're going out and they still have that that drive to keep their man scorers that's that's what I took motion that piece I yeah, and that quote surprised me because I would have thought Philly went a kick two points that would have been <laughs> <laughs> That would have been his judge of whether he had a good game. But yeah, it is. It's it's funny when they say when he says something like that. Just one of the most basic things a cornerback's meant to do. He was proud of it. You know, he kept his man, he kept his man scoreless. Um, yeah, so have a read of that. Then we go on to the Sunday World has two GA pieces. 
Uh, Pat Bland changes his tune in it and is man enough to admit it. Um, he says uh, the headline is time to let games begin again, which I'm always glad to read those kind of um, headlines. He says the sub headline is today I call on the GA to throw back open the gates of pitches and let youngsters train and play. Again, couldn't agree more. He says, but let me in the piece, he says, but let me revert to John Horan's State of the Nation interview on the Sunday game a couple of weeks ago. I made the fatal error of not trusting my good instinct on this one. Instead, I was swayed by comments made on social media. The vast majority of the posts were favourable. Number one, Pat Spillane is on social media, which I was very surprised about. And number two, why would you not go with your own opinion? Why would a pundit of his experience be swayed by what people are saying on social media? I was amazed by that. And then amazed that he admitted um, that. He said, my initial reaction to the interview was dull and uninspiring. Essentially, it was a cop-out. Crucially, he didn't explain why the GEA had decided to go against uh, the government advice but when pitches, or when pitches, about when pitches could be open. Neither did he explain why Croke Park couldn't trust GEA members to act responsibly when it came to self-regulating. Um, so that's it, Jen. He's calling on the GEA to throw back open the gates of the pitches. Not an awful lot to say about this one, really, Connor. We don't want to get dragged back into a conversation that we probably did, overdid two weeks ago and talked about again today. No, I, 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 I think we talked about a lot of it earlier on, but the, the reasons, uh, the reasoning behind art that, that the GA might kind of fast track the opening GA pitches as, as Pat wants. Like it was funny, it started off the, the way I started off reading Pat's piece was that like the GA should open the pitches because I'm getting a bit pissed off. Um, <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm in danger of sounding like that as well, if I'm being honest. <laughs> and then, like, no word you said there, his stock dropped, dropped, dropped a bit for me when he admitted that he went along with like of all pundits, and like I think everybody is kind of you know vulnerable to to go along with what, with the consensus view. But Pat Spillane, of all people, his stock and trade has been never yeah. been afraid to kind of not toe the party line. So so I found that interesting as well. But in fairness, he did back up his original um, his original point about wanting to pitches open so he wouldn't be pissed off again with some very relevant points I think that we've talked about already. Right, okay. Another one in the in the Sunday world is Roy Curtis. Now, this is the same Roy Curtis that sent that famous open letter to Neil McGee. Um, so, like, I mean, after reading that open letter, I have my mind fully made up of this uh, fella. This is the most bizarre piece. I can't make head nor- Maybe you can explain this to me, lads, and maybe I'm just uh, not on his intellectual level to know what this is all about. So, um, today's chapter in our 39 Steps to Greatness. So this is obviously a, a, a running thing he does. Today's chapter in our 39 Steps to Greatness series focuses on the rush of glory that was, is the Cody supremacy. Right. So then when there was 39 numbers, number one is is Nolan Park. And this is what he says, like he talks absolute n- rubbish. Nolan Park, governed by the strict blue collar perimeters of Brian Cody's hurling ideology, is a cold house for samba drums or Copacabana foot tennis. Yet from the youngest age, like their Brazilian soccer cousins, the stick men of Kilkenny shine with the aura of destiny. The tune is a fixed one. Their birthright ambition unaltering. Now, right, so it just sounded nonsense. But number one, then I thought was Nolan Park. So then I thought number two would correspond to two. So you know the way those lists work. But they don't. The, the numbers have no um, connection to what he's talking about. So I'll give you another example. Here's number four. At the epicenter of the empire, a timeless, uh, timeless creature of smoldering will, we find the master of the house. That's that's number four. Then number 11, addicted to the contest, he recoils any notion that being in the arena amounts to some kind of grotesque self-sacrifice, comes down hard on showboating punditry. Les, can you explain what's going on here? <laughs> Pardon, <Lee> that one. 
<laughs> I like. I'm still trying to work Roy Curtis out, like uh, from his tweets. I haven't well worked out. Don't worry about that. If, if, if. <laughs> like his tweets are uh, different, and I mean, like you know, it's like he's writing a poem with every sentence he's writing, and and like just grand. He won sports writers a year, so that's that's the trick. I, I don't know, but um. I can't. I can't make out that article. Like all I could do was go back to my favorite ever Roy Curtis tweet, and it was about Jack McCaffrey, and he called him an uncontainable colt, winning and gambolling at the speed of light across Croke Park's verdant acres, a supersonic Clontarf comment, a flying doctor, and as it goes on and on and on, like just to watch is an infusion of beautiful. He complimented Henry Shefflin's Himalayan level of consistent excellence. So I'm not sure exactly what that was meant to be as well. Of course, here's number here's number seventeen again. The numbers are just complete. Where did he put thirty nine out? What's ter- like? I just wh- why is it randomly thirty nine? And what what if, what is it? Anyways, here's number seventeen. Of course, this story doesn't belong solely to Cody Spielberg or Scorsese. Could not have achieved tran- transcendence in the director's chair without dazzling leading men and exceptional role players. So then he start think he starts going into talking about some players. Um, DJ Carey, the human fizz bomb, the roadrunner with a hurl, but so much more than an accelerating blur, both the lethal predator and the author of moments of gorgeous sorcery. I swear, like I'm not messing, you would have to pay me to write the articles that this fella writes, never mind pay to buy the paper to actually read what he writes. It's beyond beyond belief. Him and Brettany, between him with his nonsense and Brettany with his endless lists, you would think a, a journalist with the experience he has could think up of a better thing, especially when he's known for lists. And then the best he can come up with is like a super list. So um, that's all I have to say about that. The last one we're going to talk about, lads, is in the Irish Daily Mail. It's an interview with Andy Moran, with Michael Clifford. Only one uh, Gaelic Games uh, piece in the Irish Daily Mail. Um, And Andy Moran, not too much new in this, Connor. You are a Mayo correspondent. I thought thought it was funny that he's saying he doesn't watch back games, but he got a text off Bernard Brogan to watch the 2030 game. A game... Berner scores two two in, and he's texting Andy Moore, who loses the game, to to uh, to watch. The, I don't think Andy actually was there for that. No, he wasn't there for two thousand and twelve. He was there for thirteen. Um, yeah. But the one the one thing I did think of, uh, I thought was interesting, is that you know he's not going to dwell too much on the All Ireland losses. The most recent ones from eleven on, and he says. He says, uh, he asks himself a question, which Andy Moran loves to do. He says, <laughs> overall, I could sit back over all the years and particularly with that team from 11 to 19 and say, do you know something? We maxed it out. In that 17 final, we got to 116. And I always had this thing um, that if the target to beat Dublin was to get to 20 points and we got to 19, every time we were going to the last minute, it's not like we faded away. And I think that's it. They maxed themselves out. And we're beaten by a better team, Connor. And I think Andy Moran can probably sleep well at night because of that. Yeah, I think he can. And lead like, well, Andy was involved in 2006, for example, which I would imagine he's be he'd be more embarrassed to look back on than than, than some of the finals since 2011. And you would hear you would have heard that from Mayo players that were involved as well that they, that they don't. It's not necessarily the the ones that they lost by a point that they have the biggest regrets over. It's when they didn't perform whatsoever. Whereas yeah. that 2017 final on, but they got to 19 points. I think Dublin had a higher conversion rate. In that final 
than in any other final before that. So Dublin had to do their absolute maximum to beat them. Mayo like gave us as much as they could absolutely get. Um, apart from that, like yeah, he's like and Andy's done a few interviews uh, lately. I just I just found um, like he did watch the the twenty seven some of the twenty seventeen final back lately. He said he was watching it with his wife, and it took him about an hour and a half because he was getting her to stop it, and rewind it, and do this, that, and the other, and analyzing it and saying why didn't we do this and this and that. And it just spoke to a future that Andy's going to have in in coaching. I would imagine he's already involved the Mayo under 20s and even like he's done um, he's done a couple of game, Mayo games on Midwest Radio and he, he's absolutely brilliant brilliant to listen to uh, particularly on forward movement and, and why players might have made certainly certain decisions and stuff like that telling you stuff that you might not have that you might not have known otherwise so like it just like he, he can be he, he he can have a pretty analytical nature and I think it speaks well for him for, for a future in coaching and, and hopefully a, a good future in coaching with Mayo as well. Yeah, maybe you've given me an idea for next Monday. Inside forward movement with Andy Moran. The yeah. art of inside forward movement. How about that? That can be another one we'll do. Connor, anything to add? Or Conan, anything to add to that before we finish up? The 50 best inside forwards of all time. <laughs> <laughs> the 50 best inside movers of all time. Andy Moran won. <laughs> I, actually, the one thing I picked up from that piece, as much as I love Andy, <laughs> I don't think Donny Gall gets enough credit in Mayo for 2012. I think everybody in Mayo just thinks they didn't play well that game. Yeah, that true, game. true. I think everybody who played Donny Gall those two years think they didn't play well, but <laughs> there was a reason for that. Yeah, yeah. No, there definitely was. They do make a comment on that. I would th- that I'd say that could be one that rankles worse to them because they've they've pretty much beaten Donegal every other single game except for that one all out of final car. And apart, like we beat beat them the next year, I think by like nineteen points. Yeah. yeah. And there was a completely different Donegal team, which you're right, and definitely in any of the big games we've played Donegal since. But um, I don't know. Like I, I get where Conan's probably coming from. Any any Mayo player that probably talks about 2012 will. Will say, you know, mention first how Mayo didn't play particularly well, but and the fact that that final was probably decided in the first ten minutes. Maybe it sounds begrudging towards uh, towards Donegal, but I don't think it's intended that way. At least I hope not. Yeah, exactly. Right, fair play, lads. We leave it there. We've gone uh, way over time. Apologies to Martin Bretney and Roy Curtis. Um, well, they're not really sorry, and we'll talk to you next. <laughs> we'll talk to you on Thursday with a tribute show, and three of us will probably be back next Monday again. Talk to you then. Good luck. And when I started running, I suppose I didn't stop. And when I got the chance to go, I said I'd stay going. So it opened up. We were only the small little fish out there, so we are. And uh, we're trying hard to make it through. But it's hard to get the breaks when you're the smaller fish. Because I love this county so much, you know. And it's just, I'm delighted that the lads, the lads did it for the people of Walford today because, like, I, I'm, heart, I'm heartbroken. I let it go, cause I